Hey guys, this is John Karabi, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Turn it up, strap yourself in, and get ready for the stories, baby. Yep. Hey, Metalheads, welcome to the second episode of our Little Mountain Sound Project, and this week we are featuring John Karabi. Yep, I cheated a little. I said I got a singer, a guitar player, a bass yeah. player, <laughs> and a drummer. Yep, uh, double singers. No, no, Karabi is a guitar player. Well, yeah, he is. <laughs> so you get double guitar players, double singer, yeah, right? Yeah, he also is a singer, yeah. Yeah, great get that you had on this, and of course the, the interesting thing on this one, of course, is that it's the... I basically, I did your interview without you being here. I, at the last minute, I couldn't yeah. come down and I sent you the questions and you told me you answered all of them. Yeah. Or you asked all of them, yeah. which was, I appreciate it. Um, I'm a huge, huge fan of that 94 record. Yeah. Massive fan. I, when they broke up with Vince Neil, I was kind of thinking, well, where are they going to go? Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really uh, very familiar with, uh, what was the Scream? was yep. Karabi's band before. Right. I heard one or two tracks. And then, of course, they got John Karabi in, in the band. Right. And um, I remember the album before it came out, Kerrang! were absolutely, you're talking 94 Kerrang! now. Mm-hmm. Kerrang! in 94, when it came to Motley Crue, were, they were yesterday's news, right, they yeah. were done. Right. And they, they, they gave the album five Ks. They yeah. said the album was absolutely incredible, that it, it was a massive leap musically uh-huh. from what they'd done in the past. And I couldn't wait to hear it. And I put it on and it took a, it, it wasn't immediate. It's, yeah. not, it's not an immediate record at all, but a really heavy album lyrically. Mm-hmm. And uh, Bob Rock did a fantastic job on it. And the songs on it, still stand up today misunderstood is an incredible song yeah um and that, like the album's 20 over 20 years old now and uh we all know the story with it they went out in arenas then this it ended, they ended up in clubs and it it died a death yeah but um i think over the years it's one of these albums that has got a, a rev- it's going to got a bit of a revisionist history mm-hmm. yeah i think um when you look at certain albums that came out in the 90s um I think like Strange Highways is one. Right. I think Winger's Pull would be another one I think of. Um, and definitely the Motley Crue record. There's yeah. a lot of people now that didn't like it at the time right. that absolutely rave about that record now and think it's easily the best thing they've ever done. Right. And of course, Mick Mars, is, when he was asked, I think by Eddie Trunk last year, which Motley Crue album was his favourite, he picked this one. Yeah. Which probably raised a few eyebrows, but he said that musically it's easily the best thing they've done. And yeah. Uh, what else I like about this, and uh, what I what I really liked when you you know wanted to pick this kind of tie-in is that this ties back to last year's project exactly with what you just said. That when Strange Highways came out, it was very vilified, and you know a lot of people wrote it off and all of that. And, and now people look back at it and you look at the success, the reaction we got out of doing that project last year and all the people that were like, wow, I really love that album. Or maybe I didn't love it when it first came out. But mm. and just, you know, just the the listener reaction coming back to us on that one really showed that that now there's a lot different view of that. And I felt like this was that nice tie in that this is that little mountain album that had that same thing where it, it polarized people when it came out. A lot of people wrote it off and all that, but now 
there's more people that go back and look at it and they like it. And you can see that, too, be, you know, with the reactions that uh, that Chris and Aaron got with their their uh, two parter that they did with John mm. on the Decibel Geek. And of course, that was also part of our. And, you know, you, you heard that. I heard that. It was great. And, and you they popped in your head of going, hey, you know, I and we kind of independently both kind of said, hey, we should probably do that. And of course, yeah. you, you made it happen. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, and I, I say it in the talk with John, but I do urge you guys that uh, definitely go and, and listen to Desperate Geek podcast. They did it December 2014, did a great two parter with John where they went through every single song that like the meanings, the songwriting behind all of that. If you really want to pull back the curtain on those songs, I absolutely urge you to go back and listen to that. I think you'll really like it. It's a nice, either way you put it, that's that's kind of the nice addendum to this episode, or we're the nice addendum to their episode. Either way, I, I think they're they're very much related, and whatever information is missing on this one, it's in that one, absolutely 100% oh, guaranteed. Everything is in there. So yeah, yeah. The, the, how we got into the band, how they bonded before they recorded the record, and then it's track by track by track. By track. Like It's two episodes yeah. for a 12-track album, so yep. you can imagine the detail Karabi goes into with the right. two guys. It's a great two-potter, a lot of information in there, really well done. Uh, just the, the personalities, the energy, all of that, it's, it's, it's fun to listen to as well. So I, I urge everybody to go listen to that. Um, yeah, but we want you to listen to ours too. Of course. Well, yeah. After you're done listening <laughs> to this one, go listen to that. But but definitely do that. It's 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 a great one. Yeah. So the one thing I would say about that Motley Crue tour is because it was in Ireland, and of course, you know, another one of these bands that never made it over there. I've hardly ever seen anything of that tour. Uh huh. Like you're talking ninety four, ninety five, pre internet. I don't know how much footage is out there. Yeah. I don't think any of it was ever professionally recorded. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um. So, you know, I love the record. I've I've never really seen any of it live. So that there's a bit of a gap there that I would like to, you know, have a bit bit of a a live recording or or something. But yeah. Like I even bought the Caternary EP when it came out. Yeah. And, and that was not cheap. That was like Japanese. Imp- I have the Japanese import. It's like. 13 or 14 songs on it and I think it probably cost me about in American money probably about 60 bucks yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's got like the four solo tracks and then there's a couple of le- um, unreleased right. that, that didn't make the record right. and we go through all that when, when I talked to John well, I did ask it was that. one of your yes, questions it was and, I wanted to know yeah, all about that you you, 100% of that this is this is really bizarre because Richie's heard none of the interview I've yet heard either, none of it but we did that was one of your questions yeah. definitely we, we John was great he went really in depth with all of what happened with that as well his memory is amazing isn't it really yeah, um, yeah. and I know it's probably when you look when you look at John now I think like he's been in like the scream, he's been in Union, mm-hmm. he's been in Motley Crue, and he probably gets asked a lot about Motley Crue. I'm sure a lot. Yeah, and I I don't know whether sometimes it might piss him off thinking, oh, why does people people always ask me about one band when I've done all this other stuff? Right. Like the unplugged director he did is brilliant, mm-hmm. brilliant, and I know he's out now doing shows where, and I don't know he's, if he's coming around here, but he's doing the Motley Crue record yeah. front to back. Yeah which I'm like, holy shit, please come up here and play. And <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's come up here yet. Finger, You know, the record label's around here, so maybe they can right. organize something. Joe? But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, I'd love to see him do that. I'd say he does an incredible yeah. job with it because all the reviews so far have been brilliant. Yeah, Because yeah. they did it in 94, 
And of course, Vince came back and you know Vince is not going to go near any of that stuff. Right. Even though the rest of the guys might love that record, yeah. it's not even brought up. Right, yeah. And it's just got all this great music and I just love to see it in a live setting. Yeah, and it's it's not like... He couldn't do. I, I could. I could see him doing a couple of those songs. Yeah, you know, easily. But yeah, and you know, and this is also a very interesting one because when you talk about Little Mountain Sound and you talk about what else Crew did at Little Mountain, and those other albums are, when they came out, they were considered, oh my God, you know gift from above kind of a yeah. thing you know the metal gods have bestowed this amazing album and you know you go back and you talk about you look at their history of metallica well where did where did they get bob rack to do the black album it comes from the crew album it comes from little mountain yes yeah. you know there's uh, and there's lots of other bands that that same thing it's that drum sound it's coming out of little mountain um there's a lot of metal history tied into the other albums that the crew did up there, and it's it's interesting to have such a different sounding album, equally as powerful sounding, but a, so, so remarkably different than what they did up there yeah, prior. I think sonically, I think this, the, the crew album sounds incredible. Mm. You can hear everything on it, and it is really, really heavy. Yeah. It is one heavy album. Like you put on Smoke the Sky and the breakdown in the middle of that is like Pantera. Yeah. It's Pantera heavy. And I'm thinking, like, this is Motley Crue. <laughs> this is the band that did Slice Your Pie and She Goes Down. Yeah. And now he's doing songs like Uncle Jack and, you know, Smoke the Sky and, you know, darker stuff. Right. Really, really heavy stuff. And I think at the time people just thought they jumped on the bandwagon a bit. Uh-huh. That they, oh, they're doing a bit of grunge, they're getting grungy and all that. But I, I didn't see that at all. I just thought it was just an incredible record top right. to bottom. Just fantastic. And what else is interesting is that, um, and and there are some dark ass stories behind some of those songs that, that John talks with Aaron and Chris about. But when I talk to John about recording up there, there's no dark vibe about it. I mean, he had a lot of fun. Mm. Uh, he has got great memories about it. Or sometimes, you know, bands record that dark album and they're also in a really dark time. Mm-hmm. You know, it comes out in that kind of music, but definitely, you know, not not this at all. So uh, uh, good times. I think this album is, you know, is another good testament to one that the staff at Little Mountain and just the sound that came out of that studio. So I thought that this was a, a really good one to start off as our first one that we would roll out for an artist. And obviously the next one we'll do will be another one of the, you know, technical behind the scenes guys. But uh, yeah, I just thought that this would be a nice one to kick off. Yeah. I think that's, I think they're right doing, doing this one. Yeah. Get the, do the guitarist first. Singer. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, with that, why don't we dive right in? You can hear Richie's interview with John Karabi as done by me. Yeah. In Scott's, (laughs) Scott Irish accent. Yeah. Not, not. (laughs) All right, guys. I I think we're ready to lay this first track down. Take one, roll.
gym. Yeah. Really explore the studio space this time. You got it, Bruce. I mean, really. Yeah. Explore the space. I like what I'm hearing. Go away. I have to say that a few weeks back, I was listening to uh, another fellow show of ours, the Decibel Geek, and they had an, just an awesome two-part episode with this guy back in December. And of course, I'm talking about John Karabi, and you know, Aaron and Chris sat down and just went through the entire album with him, every song. And I definitely urge, if you guys are into the self-titled Molly album, go back to the Decibel Geek and listen to the great two-parter that Aaron and Chris did with John, and you will get insight into every single one of the songs in that album. A fantastic, fantastic interview. That put John on our radar of, like, he would be the great guy to add to this little mountain project. So uh, we have him on board tonight. How are we doing, John? I'm all right. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I have to say, like I just said, that was just an incredible talk that you and you did with Aaron and Chris. Just all the insights, the way you guys get into that thing. Something that was really great to listen to. It was a lot of fun. It was it was uh, it was quite interesting going back and and um, revisiting a lot of that stuff, the, a lot of the songs, and and um, you know revisiting the memories and and uh, when we were doing it. So it was it was it was cool. I had fun doing it. Yeah, it's, it sounded like it. It really came through as well. Uh, definitely wasn't a, a dry thing, you guys. It sounded like you were really getting into it. And that, like I said, that really gave me the idea of, uh, you know what, Richie, we really got to get John on because he'd be somebody would be great to talk about their experience up at Little Mountain for one. And then two, you know, recording an album that was 
when it came out was this thing of either people really loved it or people really hated it. So I just thought it would be key to talk to you about that. And of course, you know, you, you worked on it with Bob Rock. Yes. Were you aware at all with a lot of what Bob Rock had done before you started working with him on this? Uh, a little bit. Um, you know, obviously I knew he worked on the Motley stuff and, um, you know, Feel Good, uh, Decade of Decadence. I wasn't really sure or I, I wasn't aware of the fact that, you know, until we until we actually got going and, you know, I was able to sit in the room and talk with Bob, you know, that he had engineered a lot of the Aerosmith stuff and earlier than, you know, earlier mm-hmm. and that he had actually worked with a band called the Electric Boys that I thought their first record was amazing. Now dig this. then you know he's like oh i worked on that record i you know he produced some of the tracks or something i don't know if he did the whole record but i know he 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 did a few of the tracks and i there was one song that those guys had called lips and hips that i thought was great so um it was it it was very cool like getting to know bob on a personal level and in you know musically it was uh it was pretty cool so you know you guys go in for pre-production on this album and of course bob's work with motley on a number of albums so you guys come in and do this one i mean did, what was bob's reaction when he heard this new bunch of material from you guys um it, it was weird in the beginning like you know i gotta be honest with you we were just you know kind of feeling it out you know like um the guys had told me that they had worked with bob before um and that he was great to work with, you know, so I was excited about that part, but, you know, then seeing that he, he had done all these great records, you know, the black album, Metallica, and, and you know, all the stuff that, uh, you know, prior to our record, I, I, I got to admit, I was a little intimidated, you know what I mean? So I'm not, um, you know, I got into the room and I just wasn't sure. Like, I'm like, uh, you know, and it, I mean, the whole situation that I was in was awkward anyway, you know, like I'm replacing this, you know, for lack of a better term, a legendary, iconic singer like Vince Neil, you know what I mean? And, you know, so 
I wasn't sure. Like even even when I was around, you know, the management, Motley's management, and the record label, I wasn't really sure out of the gate how everybody felt about me. Anyway, mm. you know what I mean. So um, I felt like it was a little awkward in the beginning, but you know, the more I hung out with them and and got to know his sense of humor and everything like that, I thought it was it was great. Now, of course, being up in Vancouver instead of doing a chunk of the album down in L.A. did that also help to make you feel a little bit more at ease about the situation rather than being back at Ground Zero? Well, we did it. We did it for multiple reasons. Um, First, you know, Bob was married and I don't know how many kids he had at the time. He, uh, you know, he, he was, he had his family and he was like, you know, he didn't really want to have to go to LA for a year and knock out a Motley record. So we worked it out where, okay, we'll come up to you. We'll spend five or six months up there. Um, and then we'll take a break. You know, we'll live with everything that we've recorded so far, and then we'll come down and we'll finish in L.A. And that, that was kind of the fair thing to do mm. so that we could all be around our families and kids. And, you know, so that was the main reason why we did it. And then the other reason, too, Motley being Motley, um, we felt that, you know, them doing a new record with a new singer and all this other kind of stuff, we didn't want a lot of distractions we wanted to go away and at least get a grip or get a start on what we were trying to do um, without all the distractions of having, you know, all of our friends and people right. stopping by the studio and all that other stuff. This was, the, Going to Vancouver allowed us to really lock ourselves away for, you know, seven, eight, ten hours a day and just focus on task at hand. You know what I mean? Oh, so, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, you get, you kind of eliminate all the, the hangers-on, you minimize the label folks kicking around, all that stuff, yeah. And trust me, if there's anybody that's got hangers-on, it's Molly. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It was like, oh, God, we need to get out of town for a while. Yeah, I, I had heard, though, that some of the fans up there had actually caught on a little bit, and they recognize the bikes that were up there and then some people kind of knew oh motley's in town because the bikes would show up yeah well they didn't come right away we we you know i think when we got there if memory serves me correctly we started uh we went up to vancouver it was i want to say mid to late october early november mm. and we kind of set up shop and immediately got to work um and the bikes didn't come until, <clears throat> you know, we were there for a while. So um, I think the bikes came a couple months later. But there was there was definitely some Motley sightings at the Roxy. Uh, there was a club called the Roxy and obviously a few of the strip bars in town. And right. um, so we're dead out. You know, it was, it was pretty funny. So what was your first impression of, of going up there, walking Little Mountain Sound? Did you kind of have any preconceived notions before you went up there? Or were you pleasantly surprised at the facility? Well, no, I, I had heard about it. Um, you have to understand, too, like, from our point of view, we had we had done some demos and things at a place called A&M. Mm -hmm. It used to be called A&M. Now, I, I believe it's uh, it's uh, Jim Henson bought it out, the Muppet guy. Right. And he made his, his facility there, but... A&M was a pretty huge complex. And, you know, the studios that I had recorded in um, prior to that, like, you know, the record plant and Ocean Way and all these studios in America, were they were huge complexes. Right. And it, we, I got up to Little Mountain, and I was kind of like, um, 
I was kind of taken back a little bit by the fact that it was just this tiny little quaint studio. You know what I mean? It was, it was, uh, it was interesting. I'm like, Oh wow, this is a lot smaller than I thought it would be. Yeah. yeah. But, um, the minute I walked in the door, uh, we set up our gear. I met Bob and then the guys immediately kind of played a joke on me. Um, we were setting up in studio a, and unbeknownst to me, um, I didn't realize that when we were up there recording and nobody said a word to me, but, uh, I didn't know it that Aerosmith had been there and they had finished their tracking in studio a on the get a grip album. And they had moved to studio B and they were just doing like punch ups and mixing with Bruce Fairburn. Hmm. And I'm a huge Aerosmith fan. And, you know, so Tommy and Nikki and the guys are like, Oh, Hey man, we should go next door and say hi to the band, you know, not kind of filling me in, uh, you know, so I'm like, oh yeah, cool. You know, we're you know they're giving me this BS story that oh we're gonna let's we're gonna be here for like seven or eight months. We should make ourselves, uh, you know, introduce ourselves to the band that's here next door recording. Yeah. And we walked in, and I was just like, oh my god, freaking out! Like, <laughs> you know, I'm sitting in a room with Bruce Fairburn, Joe Perry, and Steven Tyler. Yeah. And I was like, holy, you know, I I could think of a few adjectives to throw in there, but uh. I couldn't believe it. I was just blown away. And it was like, now, now if I wasn't intimidated before, now I'm really intimidated. So it was, it was pretty funny. Yeah. I, I would have been too. I mean, I'm, I'm a Boston boy and yeah, I mean, I bought all the original albums on vinyl and stuff and it would have been the double whammy for you too. You got, you got thinking, okay, crap, Joe Perry's going to hear me play guitar and Steven Tyler's going to hear me sing. You know, you get both barrels at it. Yeah. Uh, so I was, uh, it, it, it was, it was pretty, the first, you know, week or two until I settled in, I was just like, I was just in awe of everything. You yeah. know what I mean? So it was pretty funny. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It, you know, it, it is interesting. I had, when we talked to uh, one of the original guys that opened up the studio, he sent us a bunch of pictures of little mountain. Cause there's not a lot of pictures out there, but he sent us some of his own personal pictures. And, and I, even I was like, wow, it's just, there's just not a lot to it. And you think back to think of like all the amazing albums that came out of there. And I, I think it just comes down to a lot of it is just the, the personalities that the people there, you know, Bob and Mike and Bruce. And I mean, just amazing march of names of people that work there. It's just, it's killer. Yeah, and we can't forget Randy Staub either. Mm. Bob's, you know, right hand or left hand, depending on what hand he's using. Mm. Um, you know, Randy was awesome with getting tones. Like, Bob would have a vision for thing, and, you know, Randy was in, in the room, and Mike had the drums and the amps, and just, you know, it, it, was, it was a great combination of people, and um, you know, the, the studio actually just had a great sound to it, you know, so it was um, great people, great sounding room in a great city, and, and I had a blast. It was awesome. You guys had the uh, the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra come in and, and play on the album. Whose idea yes. was that to bring those guys in? I, well, it was weird. We did the song Misunderstood, and initially on the demos, we just used kind of a synthesizer, like, um, synthesizer for strings and stuff. Mm. And, um, you know, at that point, Molly had just signed that massive record deal. And, you know, we're sitting there and we were listening to kind of what we did. And we were discussing how we wanted strings on the song. And, you know, we're sitting there thinking about like string programs that we could use for the synthesizer. And I don't remember who suggested it, but it was like, you know what? Like, 
how much could it cost to actually have the symphony come in here and play it? Let's just, if we're going to do it, let's do it. Mm. You know what I mean? And, um, that was just that for me, I, I just remember like sitting in the room with the conductor. I can't remember his name, but sitting in the room with the conductor, trying to sort out and throw ideas at him and him charting everything out. And then like a day or two later, the entire orchestra, it was like a 53 piece orchestra in the room. And, um, I gotta be honest, man, I was, Tommy and I were sitting in the room with them when they were playing their tracks and we had headphones on and it, it was probably one of the most intense things that I've ever done or seen in a studio. It was just, it was just brilliant. Yeah. So it was pretty cool. And it must've been just killer too, to just hear your song, like, get instantly fleshed out like that in a way you probably never thought possible. Yeah, that, that, and that was the thing. Like, Tommy and I, were we were so jacked about it. Like, we're like, oh, no, we want to sit in the room. and Because it was, it was just like the whole thing, you know, coming to fruition. But also, we were just so blown away at, like, those big, uh, you know, the big bass, um, you know, uh, I, I, don't, I don't even know. It's not a cello, but it would, like, the big bass instrument. Mm-hmm. And they had like three or four of them in there. And these guys were hitting notes with the bow and just how loud it was. It was just so powerful. Yeah. And so Tommy and I kept going back and forth from the room to the, to the control room, back to the room. And then finally, like when they were tracking, we're like, I want to sit in there and I want to hear it while they're tracking and feel it. Like, cause you could feel the vibration of, you know, all the cellos and the violins and like just the whole thing. It was it was pretty intense, man. It was like probably the next best thing to like <laughs> to like going to church or something. It was it was it was pretty spiritual, man. It was cool.
I can imagine. I've had like a little taste of that before with, uh, you know, back in like the the late '80s, early '90s when Roland first put out that uh, their VG, and there was a one of the uh, music stores that my band would go to all the time, and it got to be the point where they would just let us use anything when we walked in. And uh, the guy who took me over, and he had all these synth brains all hooked up, and he plugged an instrument into every single synth brain, and I sat there, and I started playing one of our original tunes, and just to hear that tune playing a full orchestra, and, and even though the VG had, like, crappy tracking at that point, it just was like, wow! So I can just imagine how intense it was for you guys to be there and doing that. It's just, yeah, it, it just kind of gives me goosebumps just talking to you about it. Yeah, we were so it was, we were so blown away. It was, it was just ridiculous. Like, but it was weird, like... Every day that we were there, we came up with a new part or a new, you know, or we'd finish a song and we just kind of had this, you know, Tommy and I mainly would, would either go to Tommy's room or my room and, and, um, you know, we, we discovered, um, you know, instead of Bloody Marys, they had the Caesars there and we would literally sit in a room and the guy at the, the night, the, the night desk guy would, you know, he'd wheel a cart into the elevator and bring it up to us and, you know, bring us a bottle of vodka and all the stuff we needed to make Caesars. And we would literally sit in a room each night with headphones and listen to all the playbacks each day. And it was just, it was just, it was truly just an amazing experience. You know what I mean? The whole thing, it was blast. It was fun. It was creative it was it was just everything man it was awesome yeah it's good to hear that too because you know i know when you did the talk with chris and aaron and you know you talked about how things were kind of really unsettled for you at that time and you know even not sure what you know doing doing motley of course you know it's motley and like you said you know you, you took the chance and you did it because it's motley but to the fact that you went up there and you right off the bat started to have just a really good positive experience out of that just i mean that's something that a lot of people can't say yeah it was it was a good time i mean it, it was a little unsettling it was unnerving you know but the, the the cool thing about that whole progression though like when i when i walked into that room with motley before we ever got to the studio you have to understand like we sat in a room five days a week for weeks and weeks and weeks on end. I mean, I was in the band February of 92. We didn't truly make a, like a legal announcement that I was in the band until probably July or August, but I had already been in the band like five or six months and we were going to the studio five days a week for, for you know, we'd show up at noon and we would leave at six or seven or eight o'clock depending, um, each day we were there every day. Mm. And then when we weren't there, uh, in a lot of, a lot of cases, Tommy would call me and go, crap, I got this, I got this riff. And, you know, so I was either at his house or, you know, but the, the thing of it is, is they went in with a clean slate. There was, there was nothing on the board, nothing. Yeah. So it was truly right from the beginning, four guys in a room, it didn't matter who brought the idea in, it was developed and it blossomed because of the four of us. And then we did probably 20 or 25 songs over the course of, you know, from February till, like I said, October, we had all these ideas mapped out. And then we went up to Bob and Bob had the demos prior to us going up there. 
So it gave him time to listen to him and figure out, okay, what he would do different here, what he would do different there, what songs he felt were right on the money, other songs he felt needed to be torn down and redone again. So we, we kind of, you know, we were all kind of figuring it out together, mm-hmm. you know? So that part, like, it wasn't like they wrote a bunch of songs and expected me to come in and re-sing what Vince did or anything like that. It was a clean slate across the board. So that part of it, the creative part of it was easy. I was just, you know, I just felt like, I still kind of felt like in Motley's camp, there was people that were scratching their heads going, why did you get rid of, you know, the guy? Like, you know, why did you do this? Why did you do this? Yeah. So that part of it, I felt a little uneasy about. And then, you know, you meet people, like I never met Bob Rock prior to that. So I finally met him and, you know, you kind of get into a room with somebody in a situation like that and you're just trying to figure them out. Like, you know, is he being funny now? Is he being sarcastic? Is he being, is he being adamant? Is he, you know what I mean? Like right. there's yeah. all these things that you got to kind of figure it out. By the time we were done, I just, I loved doing that record with Bob. And I, I've told, I've told everybody before, like I wouldn't have any heartbeat at I like in a heartbeat, I would work with Bob Rock again. I thought he's, I thought he was amazing. And you know, when you were working with Bob, was it easier recording guitars or vocals? Did you see a difference in, in what you were doing and how you work with Bob on things? Um, he had a way of pushing you with everything. Um, I think on the fly, um, and I, I don't know why, like I, I started out as a guitar player and I think I have a tendency, um, from a musical point of view, personally, I feel like I, I'm just the type of guy that if you, I, I can come up with riffs all day long. Um, you know, I can put chords together, whatever, but from a singer point of view, I think it's a little bit more difficult than playing guitar because you have to find the melody, right? the perfect melody for those chords, and then the perfect lyrics for that melody to, to drive the, the song home. And so I think on that part of it, like when I was working with him vocally, it was a little more difficult, you know? Um, but he, he had a way of like, it was weird. He wasn't, I don't want to say he was a taskmaster, because he wasn't, um, but he had a way of just like, he gradually just kind of worked me in. Like he didn't have me right out of the gate, jump in and sing like seven hours a day. Like he worked me out. He, he just knew like he had me doing vocal exercises before I would start singing. And then he would bring me in. And the first few days I would just sing for like a couple of hours. Mm. And then he'd have me do my vocal exercises again after and then he just gradually started adding to the workload where it was like, it went from maybe two hours to two and a half hours to three hours to four hours, to four and a half hours. You know what I mean? Right. And then by the time I was done doing all of the vocals, I mean, there was, you know, I'm singing, you know, seven, eight, nine hours mm-hmm. a day. And it was awesome. But he figured it out. Like, like, even though I'm a singer, like he just knew, like, I don't want to push him too much out of the gate. Let's just get him, let him get his pipes together and let him get comfortable and all this other stuff. So with that, like, but he, he also had this way of like, I would sing something and it, it, it was funny. It was brilliant, but it drove me nuts. Like Bob, I would sing something and Bob, go, Bob would go, come on in here and listen to this. And I would go in and I'd sit and listen to it. And he'd look at me and he'd go, what do you think? 
and I go, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's pretty good. I think it's pretty good. And he'd go, and he would just sit there and he'd go, okay, well, if you're good with it, I'm good with it. <laughs> and it just made you go, okay, he's kind of doubting this right now. Like, are you not, are you not good with it? And he would go, no, you know, whatever, dude, it's your record. If you're good with it, I'm good with it. So I would, it would just, I don't want to say anger you, but it would just make you want to go, you know what? Let's go back in and do it again. I think I can do it better. And he just had this way of pushing certain buttons with people and making you deliver. Mm. But he, he allowed you to do it at a certain pace. Too. There was no like, oh, we got to have these vocals done in a week. Right. Or whatever we had that we had the luxury of time, so he allowed me to just kind of go from, you know, not really singing that much at all to, you know, really singing hard for a long period of time. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. hear people talk about Bob and you I mean he's been in enough different videos and all kinds of things and it always seems like he's this guy that knows how to listen that he doesn't have like a preconceived notion when you start playing but he really lets you go and he just listens I think some of his results come out of that just being able to openly listen to everything and then just kind of figure it out yeah he did he, he's his his ears are just like on a whole other level of like hearing them too you know what I mean because when we were we were doing the mix, um, I just remember mixing. We were at A and M at this point down in L.A. and we were mixing the song "Misunderstood." And if you go back and you look at the tracks, I mean, there was like a gazillion drum tracks. It was you know, Mick probably did a couple of guitars. I did a couple of guitars. 
you know, there was the vocals, it was doubled in some spots. Then we had Glenn Hughes, there was backing vocals, um, you know, bass, all this other stuff. And then a 53 piece orchestra. So we had literally like four studer machines going and it's all mixed and we're listening to a playback and Bob goes, why don't we stop? Randy, Randy, stop, stop, stop. And he stopped the tape and he goes, back it up, he backed it up and listened to another part again. And he goes, ah, you know, and he was not, not, you know, he wasn't having a meltdown, but he was having a moment. And there was, it's so weird because before four guys in the band, we were sitting in the back of the room listening to the playback and there was something in there. It was like in one of Tommy's snare drums or a roll that Tommy did something. He hit the drum, but he didn't quite hit it with the same oomph that he did before and after that. It was like a snare drum hit. Mm. And Bob heard it. And I'm like, how? I can't even say it, but how the frig did you hear that? <laughs> like, I, are you kidding me? I would have never heard that in a million years. Didn't even hear it. Yeah. But he heard it with, like, everything going on. He heard a snare hit that wasn't quite as, you know, it was off. Like, Tommy just didn't hit it the way he normally gets a snare drum and he heard it and I was just like, Oh my God. Like, you know, so he did whatever he had to do. He fixed it or did something with the mic, you know, where we used the volume for like a millisecond and brought it back down again. But, and then we remixed it again and then off to the races. But it was so amazing to me, his hearing, like how he could hear like every little nuance in every instrument all at the same time. It's yeah. great. It's awesome. It's amazing that you get some of these. I had an engineer that I worked with, you know, back in the eighties, and it was the same thing. We we recorded tracks one day with our normal engineer. The next day we went back in and and we're going to do mix and everything. And there's one song that I had a twelve string acoustic track, and he was like, "Yeah, your G string is is like two cents off." And I'm like, "What?" And he was right. It was like, "How the hell did you hear all of that?" And and pretty yeah. much be dead nuts on to how much it was off too it was just insane and it's amazing that some of the people that do have that ability out there yeah it, it, it bottles my mind you know what i mean yeah so. yeah absolutely so you know you've had what you talk about all the all the songs that you went in there with and you had 16 band songs i think have been released from the album sessions right you had 12 on the record three showed up on quaternary and then hypnotized was a b-side so was there anything else that was actually recorded during the little mountain sessions that just hasn't ever seen the light of day yeah there's there's a there's a few there was a song called uh <laughs> it was it, we could never come up with any lyrics for it so t nikki and i did these joke lyrics uh it was called bitch the bitch <laughs> and you know that was like that drum track that tommy does on that thing is just stupid it's like it's like Motley's version of, or Motley's tape on something like Hot for Teacher. Mm. It's just, it's just the most insane drum track ever. And then um, we had, I believe we had another song called Hell and High Heels. They wound up using the title on a later record, mm. but we had a song called Hell and High Heels. And um, there was a few others that I can't remember off the top of my head, but there was a few others, but... Uh, the ones that made the record should have made the record, you know what I mean? And the ones that didn't, didn't. Yeah. So as far as the quaternary album, now what was the, the whole deal with that? I mean, how did that evolve? That again was a Bob rock. That was a Bob rock call. Um, he was just laughing, you know, like you've got, you know, Tommy comes in, he's got a shaved head. He was hanging out the night before with Pantera and then there's Mick 
And then there's, you know, Mickey, and then there was me, like, walking in with, you know, reeking up the chewy oil and fringe jackets and beads and, you know, and Bob just kind of laughed one day and he goes, you know, it's so crazy to me how drastically different each one of you guys is, but are able to come up with the material you're coming up with together. Mm. Like individually, he just thought we were just so drastically different personality wise, everything across the board. Yeah. And he just go, you know, he just made some comment. He's like, man, I'd love to lock each one of you guys in a room by yourselves with no help from the other bands and say, write and record a song just to see what you would come out with. And we, we kind of sat there for a moment and went, okay, that's kind of a cool idea. So, uh, I think at that point, I, for, I forget how we were doing it because we started it. The idea started in Vancouver but we didn't actually start doing anything with the idea until we got back down to LA. Mm. Um, we were in little, uh, not little mountain. We were in a uh, and mm-hmm. So we were in, uh, there was a studio D, which was the mixing room. Um, there was studio a, there was, there was, there was like four or five studios. And basically what we did was, we got, you know, got a hold of the A&M people and we literally went into four individual studios and just locked ourselves away each day while Bob and Randy were mixing what we had already recorded in Vancouver. Yeah. And I went in initially to start an acoustic track. I had like this old little lullaby that I had written when my son was born. And I, I started working on it again. I blew the dust off of it and, and I got bored or whatever. And I started noodling around on the piano and I just started coming up with these chords that eventually became the song friends. Hmm. And, you know, Nikki was in one room and he was working with, you know, a couple guys separate of us. And Tommy was in another room working with Scott Humphrey separate of us. And Mick was off doing his blues thing. And, you know, we all did the songs we wrote them and then we individually went into one of the studios and tracked them all. And then we handed Bob what we did. And obviously if you listen to the songs, Mick did an instrumental blues thing. I did this very Beatlesque kind of piano ballad. Nikki did something that was like kind of industrial, but punk. Mm. And then Tommy did this kind of, industrial rap thing. And it, and then it was awesome. Mm. Bob was just laughing. He thought it was, it was great. And then that's where we had, well, we had the extra song baby kills. And, um, on the, on the initial version, when we put it out, there was five songs on it. It was the four individual songs and then one leftover track called baby kills that Mm. we, we decided let's put a coupon in with the record. And if you buy it, what, like if you bought the Motley record, it would come the first 200,000 or whatever it was, 500,000. You bought your record and it came with a coupon that you would fill out and send like a $5 money order into the record label. And then they would send you a copy of Quaternary. Sitting in this room Passing by 
like you guys condensed the whole kiss solo album concept into just one track each instead yeah and then it, it, we wound up selling out like i don't know how many i don't remember the number if it was a hundred thousand or five hundred thousand or whatever but we sold them all out and then the record label in japan said do you have any other tracks and we said well we have this demo of hypnotize that we never released we had uh, a song called ten thousand miles away that we never released and then Baby Kills, and wound up being like that, and I think we did an industrial version. We gave the guy from, uh, I think it was Skinny Puppy, we gave them Hooligan's Holiday and asked them to do like uh, like some sort of a crazy industrial dance mix of Hooligan's Holiday. So we added all that onto that, and, and we put it out in Japan only as a an, another record. Awesome. I'm going to have to look for that uh skinny puppy mix there because that's, that's i mean you already kind of have some of that industrial thing happening in there so just taking it to the next level is something i want to check out definitely yeah it was pretty cool it was it was i mean one version they did i think it's god man i think it's like 12 or 13 minutes long and it's just it's insane it's like all over the place it's it's pretty cool so most of that album was credited to you know most of the members of the band, but uh, I see that Bob got a co-write on Poison Apple. So what was it that he brought to that song that, that got him the co-write? Well, the, the well, he helped us write it. Um, we, I, I don't remember how, I don't remember what it was called before that, but we had kind of parts of the song and then we sat in a room. When we, when we wrote up there, we sat with Bob in the room and we all talked to each other through headphones and microphones and, and we were kind of coming up with ideas and Bob was like, Hey, you know, I don't know if I like this part. We need something. We needed to do something here. And then, and then the hats all came on. Like, you know, so Bob was sitting and we, we, it was funny. We got him a chair as a joke. Um, you know, cause we were calling him, uh, I think he was the King or something. We were calling him the King. So we literally went to a costume place and we got him a, a throne <laughs> like his, and we had chairs, but Bob was like kind of elevated. We, we, we set it up on a pedestal and we set him up uh, a, a throne with a big, like Royal Cape. <laughs> and, and so he would sit in a room with us and, and, you know, this, this get up in most cases. And he had a guitar there and, you know, a microphone and, and, he would say, well, I'm thinking something kind of, and he would throw something out, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then we would take the idea and run. But on, on this one, 
he wanted poison apples to be just kind of like a very loose and sloppy, uh, like, you know, kind of not sloppy, but like kind of punky sloppy guitar part in the beginning. And then, you know, turned into this Motley cheap trick kind of pop song. Hmm. And, uh, I think Mick and I were just not grasping the whole punky kind of strumming thing that he was hearing. Cause we were, you know, just overthinking it and trying to be a little too technical. So Bob did it. So he actually helped us kind of finish the song up, co-write it. And, and then that's him playing guitar on it as well. Oh, cool. He's one of those guys that seems like he can do just about anything he feels like doing. Pretty much. <laughs> Obviously you spent a ton of time up there at Little Mountain. Do you have any top memory of being up there or something that you just like to this day, you still go, did that really happen? Or, I mean, obviously the Aerosmith one, I, that one would stick with me for a lifetime. Any other ones you can remember about Little Mountain? Yeah, it was, you know, it was, it was really kind of fun, man. We just, we had so much fun up there. There was a couple of times where, you know, I don't want to really get into finger pointing, but you know, there was, there was, you know, a lot of people thought the band at that point was clean and sober and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But, mm. There was quite, there was quite a few times where you know all of us. Let's just put it that way: all of us were definitely not on any wagon at all. <laughs> and um, you know, so we had to take a couple little breaks here and there for somebody to go, you know, check their head in and, and just kind of get their head clear and go home and see their family, or you know, go to a rehab for a minute, you know, a week or something. And you know, so there was a couple times that like Tommy and I you know, we were up there and we're like, well, I don't want to go home, man. Let's, you know, let's go to Whistler. And so we would head up to Whistler for like a long weekend or, or head up there for, you know, a week while somebody else was off doing something else. And, you know, but there was, um, yeah, there was, there was quite a few stories. Um, I just remember one night we all went out and it started out with, um, God, I want to say it was me, Tommy and Mickey, went to a strip bar and then we left one of the strip bars and this was when we were all like trying to, you know, working out and trying to not drink and all. And it all wound up with, you know, the typical Motley thing. Like I, I, I can't really drink, but I think I can have a little wine. Let's just, we'll just have some wine. And we wound up going to a strip bar and we started on wine. Um, and then it, gradually just kind of progressed into, you know, Jack and Coke. And then we left there and we got into a van and we went to a place called the Ritz. And at some point during the evening, we hooked up with um, Bob Rock, Randy Staub and Snake Sabo from Skid Row had come up because he was talking to Bob about doing their next record when he was done with us. Mm. And we all went out. And at this point, Tommy, Nikki, and I had been drinking severely. And we basically walked into, I, I want to say it was the Roxy. And we walked into the back and we got a table. It was a band playing. And the waitresses came over. And Tommy and Nikki and I and Snake took all the money that we had in our pockets and put it all together. And Nikki turned to the waitress and said, how many kamikazes can we get? with this and handed this chick a wad of cash. And at that point, they literally brought at least eight or 10 trays of kamikazes and set them at our tables. 
At which point, Bob, Randy, Nikki, Snake, me, and Tommy drank every one of them. <laughs> oh, man. So, needless to say, there was no studio the next day because we were all hungover, like, beyond belief. And um, it, it was, it was, it was, it was a pretty interesting night, man. It was, it was, it was pretty funny. So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we all went back to the hotel and we had some girls come back to the hotel and, you know, it, it's in the dirt, it's in the book, the dirt, mm. but Tommy, Nikki snake and, and myself, we get into a van and we're driving home and we pass these girls on this I think, God, I want to say it was Robert Street. And, you know, unbeknownst to, I think, some of the people in the van, Robert Street is kind of an area that is kind of known for its hookers. So we get these four girls into the van, and we take them back to the hotel, not really knowing, like, whatever. So we get back to the hotel. Tommy split to go do something. He came back, like, 20 minutes later, and somebody broke out some weed and then we had booze like delivered to the room and you know, we're pouring drinks and all this other stuff. And we're like, come on, let's party. You know, we're, we're just wound up and ready to go. And one of the girls turned around to Nikki and said, if you want us to party with you, it's going to cost you guys like a grand. Oh shit. I know. I don't know if you can air that, but (laughs) Of course we can. Nowadays, you're still you're still very active. You're still out there playing and stuff. And um, so, you know, what have you got going in the next couple months uh, in the life of John Karabi? Well, right now, I've been um, oddly enough that we're doing this interview. Like, um, it's getting ready to go in and do a new record. Um, you know, I'm doing a couple things actually right now. So I've I've, I've been um, talking with a band right now about helping out doing some recording and some shows with uh, a band called the dead daisies. Hmm. But, um, um, I, I, you know, I'm, we'll see how that goes. But right now I was getting ready to go in and do a, a new record of my own. Mm-hmm. And right before I started my, you know, I've, I've just got stockpiled ideas, you know, and I was going to get into a room and start bashing them out with my band and everything. And my manager kind of came to me and he said, listen, you know, you've been kind of under a rock for the last few years. You came out, you did an acoustic record. It was great. A lot of people loved it. Your name is getting out there again. Like, you know, whatever he goes, I think what you should do before you go in and do a new, another record, he goes, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's the 20th anniversary of that Motley thing that you did. And I was like, Oh God, I didn't even realize it. You know, whatever. So, I started last year, towards the end of last year, um, I, I got my band together and we literally learned the entire Motley from when I was in the band, the entire record. And I just been out, like I'll go out and I'll do like a long weekend, four shows, come home, hang out for a few days, go back out again for a weekend here and there. Like I'm, I'm just going out and doing those shows. And I'm writing for a new John Karabi solo record and I'm writing with some other friends to see if there's any way that I can help them out with their records. So it's, uh, it's pretty cool. I'm pretty busy. Awesome. If anybody wants to know about the 
upcoming dates for you doing that uh, Motley show? Where would they go? They can go to johnkarabimusic.com. It's it's also, I believe it's listed in Bands in Town, and, you know, it, it's all over. It's it's on my Facebook pages, um, tour dates and stuff like that. So March, I'm going to be doing some work with the Dead Daisy guys. And then um, April, I'm doing the Monsters of Rock Cruise. So I'm pretty busy. It's going to be cool. When you do get that next album together, is that going to be out on Rat Pack? Oh, my, my new record? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, unless they decide that they don't want me there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But awesome. um, I think Rat Pack did a great job for me on my last record. And, and uh, you know, those guys have been nothing but cool. So, um, like I said, unless it's a one-sided thing, you know. We'll see how it goes. Yeah, that'll be good. We really like Rat Pack. We consider them to be like our hometown metal label. They're they're only about maybe 20, 30 miles up the road from us. And uh, we've mm-hmm. actually met the owner and stuff at shows. And, you know, they are definitely great folk. All, all of those guys are amazing. Yeah. Joe O'Brien, uh, he's he's awesome. Uh, like, I usually, I haven't, I haven't lately. I've been kind of doing a little bit of traveling or whatever. But Joe and I usually talk, you know, a couple times a week, you know, just chew the fat about you know, our, our, our lives, our girls, our, you know, hmm. business, whatever. Um, and then he's got a Jen who set up the interview tonight. She's a sweetheart. And then Tina up in Canada does all the internet. And, uh, she does a lot of my Facebook stuff for me and, and help cause I'm a little computer illiterate. So <laughs> she helps me figure all this stuff out. So there, there, there's a great team there. They're awesome. You know, definitely when the new one comes out, you know, we'll try to hook up back with Jen and, and maybe have you come on and do some promo for the album. I'm sure that, you know, everybody who listens to the show would, would love to know when that's coming out and hear all about it. Yep. No worries, buddy. Absolutely. All right, John. I really appreciate it a lot. Took some time tonight to talk to us. Some great stories. And I knew you'd be uh, one that would have some great stories as well. So I was looking forward to that. Like I said, thank you very much. And I'm sure Richie's going to be bumming that he, that he missed this one. But... <laughs> Tell them, tell them the next time. We'll do one. All right, All right buddy. Thank you for having me. All right. Later. All right, bye-bye. And with that, why don't we roll a little bit of John Karabi with Union. This one's called Everything's All Right. Stars in my eyes, honey, you. 
right, there you go. Our, uh, our, yeah, I guess it's our talk with John Karabi. Yeah. yeah <laughs> All right, what am I saying? What do you think? I had good questions there, didn't I? You did. That was great. <laughs> you, you saved my butt. Uh, but uh, it was a lot of fun talking to John. Hopefully, uh, you know, and he even said on it as well, is hopefully we can get one other one together where he can actually talk to Richie this time as well. So I'm sure, you know, the guy's doing other stuff and I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to talk to him again, especially where, you know, we do have a pretty good relationship with the label. Yeah, since, we do. As I always say, that's kind of like our hometown label here mm-hmm. at, with Rat Pack. So I'm sure we'll have John back on again. But I hope you guys enjoyed the second edition of the project. So who are we doing next? Uh, it's up to me. No, we'll figure it out. Okay. We'll vote. <laughs> we one of nine. Pick a number out of a hat. Is it out of nine? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, it'll soon it'll be one out of ten. Right? We still got another one we got to do. Yeah. Again, hope you guys enjoyed that one. We're really liking bringing it. We've had some great response so far. We had some surprising response so far. Um, but we've got, like I said, a lot more of these to go. Hopefully when we're all done, if you ha- didn't already have a deep need to know about Little Mountain or some respect or some understanding about it, you know, we'll hopefully we'll cover that in uh, once we've done this whole project. Yeah, well, the one thing I will say now is if you haven't dusted off the Motley Crue record in a long time, give it another listen. Yeah. And if you still don't like it, that's fine. But, you know, I think it'll surprise a lot of people now if they go back and say, don't think of Vince Neil Motley Crue. Just listen to the album as mm-hmm. an album of music. Yeah. I think you'll be very, very surprised. Yeah. Because it's, it's a fantastic record. Right. All right. So that will do it for this week. Another week of Focus on Metal in the can. Remember to keep up with us at focusonmetal.net, focusonmetal.blogspot.com. You can uh, talk with Richie on Facebook. Yeah, that's uh, me now. Covering that for me. Hallelujah. I don't have to keep <laughs> making excuses on that. I mean, I'm on there occasionally, but not nearly enough. So I'm glad Richie's he's covering not on, that he's, one he's as not well. Not on it anymore. Got that, got that presence there, and uh, and obviously on Twitter. Um, that's him. That's me. Yeah. So uh, with that, uh, for myself and uh, me, that's you. We didn't do the interview. No. Uh, have yourselves a good metal week, and until we talk to you again next week, remember. Focus on metal. Is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.